Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're back in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6 today, picking up where we left off last week with part two of a message entitled, Arm Yourselves. So if you're able, please stand with me as I read God's word. I'll read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. In Christ's name, amen. This week's terror attacks remind us that evil runs rampant in the human heart. The heart of man is capable of horrendous evil. And life, we are also reminded, can change in an instant, in the blink of an eye, without warning. And as a result, you may feel startled like when you get woke up from a deep sleep. Your reaction might be one of shock or fear of what might happen next. You may feel anger, especially when you hear that a terror plan was hatched years before. Remember this, man's evil may be planned for years but God's good purposes in Christ are from eternity. Eternity. And I know that life can be overwhelming. Things can come crashing in and it's difficult to cope. Whether health or emotions or relationships, it's easy to feel like you're hanging by a thread, patched together with duct tape and glue hanging in the balance moment by moment, walking a tightrope between sickness and health, sanity and insanity, war and peace. God wants us to have a settled peace in Christ. Firm footing in a shaky world, a firm resolve to trust him in everything. And so Peter is telling a scattered group of persecuted, discouraged, confused Christians 
And he is telling us as well how to stand strong in suffering. He encourages an eternal perspective in suffering. He exhorts us to stand firm in Christ by arming ourselves with the same purpose Christ had. In verse 1, it says that Christ suffered in the flesh. And since he did that, you should arm yourselves. That's like a soldier taking up weapons to battle. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Like Jesus did with regard to obedience and suffering. Suffering is unavoidable. Suffering is startling. It saps us of strength. But instead of hunkering down and nursing our wounds and playing defense, God wants us to be on the offensive. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ in suffering so that even in suffering you would live for Christ. Last week we saw the first two of four commitments that motivate for godly living in suffering. The first thing we saw was that you must be willing to die for Christ. That if you're not willing to die for Christ, you won't be willing to fully live for Christ. Christ suffered. He died on the cross for us. It's, it's describing that once for all suffering at the cross. Verse 1 says that he who has died has ceased from sin. That means that Jesus was done with sin at the cross. He dealt sin a decisive death blow. His death on the cross did away with sin. And for a Christian, if they kill you or you die as a believer, you cease from sin. The battle is over. The second thing we saw is that you must be committed to abandon sin. Verse 2 says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions. Abandoning sin is the major effort of believers. The Holy Spirit gives you a desire to love God and say no to sin. Romans 6 says, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So if you are a Christian, you are no longer a diseased soul desiring evil, but you now desire God. You now desire to please God. When you think of sin, it put Jesus on the cross, it messes you up, and it has ruined the world. So you should hate it. You should slay it. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He also said, rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Do not allow it to gain the smallest ground. It's like weeds in your garden. Pull them out or they will take over. You kill sin by surrendering to God, clinging to truth, praying for strength, deciding before tempted to do good and not evil. You kill sin by being wary and suspicious of sin and depending on the Holy Spirit and leaning on wise, godly friends. And when you do that, you won't be sinless, but you will sin less. So first, be willing to die for Christ, and second, abandon sin. Now we're going to pick up the last two commitments, and we'll pick it up at verse 2 
which says again, live the rest of the time no longer for human passions. And then it says, but for the will of God. Do the will of God. So when you are armed with a mindset focused on your new life in Christ, you will do God's will. You will be committed to doing God's will. We talk a lot about the will of God. What is the will of God? Many people think that God's will is some mystery to figure out, some code to crack, some, some key that needs to be found to unlock a locked door, some, some unopened door, or, or they think it's a secret that God will only tell you if you're good enough. If you're on your best behavior, maybe God will tell you. Those are warped views of God's will. God's will is rooted in his perfect character. It is his gracious disposition towards you in Christ. It is what he does of his own good pleasure. God does as he pleases. God's will is what he does of his own good pleasure. So what does it mean to live for the will of God? Because that's what this verse says. To no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. What does it mean to live for the will of God? It simply means to do what God wants. If you're living for someone's will, whatever they desire is your command. And basically, you're going to do whatever they want. So living for the will of God means doing what God wants. Now, doing God's will is synonymous with a few other phrases that we find in the New Testament. Walking in the Spirit, trusting the Holy Spirit, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's the whole idea of living a transformed life in Christ, living a fruitful life for the glory of God. It's the idea of working together with God in sanctification. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says, Working together with Him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Sanctification is a progressive, lifelong work of God and man where you become progressively freer from sin and more like Christ. Justification is all the work of God, but sanctification is a work of God and man. So doing God's will is, is becoming sanctified in Christ. It's, it's trusting the Spirit. It's, it's walking by the Spirit. Another way to put it is growing in grace. Peter says in 2 Peter, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you could say it is growing in grace. I'll, I'll give you a big word that growing in grace means that would, would go along with doing God's will. Vivification. You want to be vivified. You want to grow in grace. It's like a child learning to walk. We have five kids and each one of them when when they came out of the womb, couldn't walk yet. I think it, that was normal, right? That's, that's a normal thing. And then as time went on, they started to move. You take them out of their car seat or their, you know, container, whatever you put, where you put your kids, and, and they start like scooting along the ground. They start crawling. And then they start pulling themselves up on you know, on chairs and furniture and what have you. And the next thing you know, they're walking. The next thing you know, they're in college. 
But some people don't grow up in Christ. They're perpetual Peter Pans. They stay children. Listen to this. Healthy Christians grow. Healthy Christians are vivified. I know you won't be using this word very often, but let's use it now. Vivification. Doing God's will. Growing in grace. If you're a child of God, you will grow in grace. Let me give you four things about vivification, about growing in grace. The first is the most important. Growing in grace is supernatural. It is for God, by God, from God, through God. It's like the song we sang this morning based on Romans eleven thirty six: From him and to him and through him are all things. So you grow in grace. You, you, you're able to do the will of God. It's because God is doing it. The work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart. I'm going to give you a big quote here up on the screen. It's, it's a long one, but I want you to see it. Richard Lovelace says, We should make a deliberate effort at the outset of every day to recognize the person of the Holy Spirit, to move into the light concerning his presence in our consciousness, and to open up our minds and to share all our thoughts and plans as we gaze by faith into the face of God. We should continue to walk throughout the day in a relationship of communication and communion with the Spirit, mediated through our knowledge of the Word, relying upon every office of the Holy Spirit's role as counselor mentioned in Scripture. We should acknowledge him as the illuminator of truth and the glory of Christ. We should look to him as teacher, guide, sanctifier, giver of assurance concerning our sonship and standing before God, helper in prayer and as the one who directs and empowers witness. Growing in grace is, is supernatural. It is a work of God done in the human heart, in the redeemed soul. Secondly, growth in grace is internal. It is internal. Believers want to internally do the will of God. They, they're committed to God's will more than they are theirs. And though it might not come out externally the way we, we want, believers are internally desiring to do God's will. Ephesians 6 verse 6 says you're to do the will of God from the heart. That's internal. Philippians 2.3 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And there's a reason. Because God is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Believers want to do God's will. And God wants to will that. 2 Thessalonians verse, um, verse 11 in chapter 1 there says, God wants to fulfill our resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. It starts internally, and it will, it will be evidence on the external. Even the external things have internal origins. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, Romans 12 tells us. All of life is to be an act of worship to God. 1 Corinthians tells us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There should be a full abandonment of all your desires and ambitions and rights. 
That's the only way to make progress in Christ. We, we lay aside our will and we, we desire God's will and it, it starts internally but it will show itself in our life. If you hold on to your will, then following Jesus will seem to you drudgery. It will seem like a moral obligation. God wants complete and total surrender to his will and it starts on the inside. So growth in grace is supernatural, it's internal, and it is also relational. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, what's it referring to? To what verse 3 said, that the time past has been more than sufficient for you to carry out all the things that unbelievers want to do. And so it assumes that you have stopped doing what you used to do before you were a believer. In fact, isn't it true once you become a believer, sins that seemed like nothing before weigh heavily on your conscience? With respect to this, they are surprised. There is a wonderment on the part of unbelievers when you do not join them in doing all the things you used to do. So this is the context of people who know you and knew your life before you were a believer and and are very surprised that you don't live like that anymore. And it says that they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. That's a great word picture, flood. Just sin flowing through and just taking whatever is in its path. They're surprised. They're they're, they're wonder. Um, But I'm going to call it this, resentful astonishment. They're resentfully astonished. They're offended at your life in Christ because you're not saying yes to the things you used to say yes to. And they're bugged by it. They hate you because you do not do what they do anymore. It's like when you go to the neighborhood you grew up and you go look at your old house and a place that used to be so familiar isn't familiar anymore. Actually, it seems foreign. That's what it's like when you come to faith in Christ and you, and you consider what you used to do and it's just so far removed from your life. Loses its familiarity. It's foreign because you've been transformed in Christ. Some people would say, well, actually, I still do all the things I used to do. Well, maybe you're not saved. Maybe it's a false profession of faith. Maybe you're deluded. But if you are in Christ, you're transformed. You are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. You want to obey God's word. You want to walk in the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us God's will is for us to be sanctified and then to abstain from sin. That we would be progressively becoming more like Christ. And so as this happens, you may lose some of your old friends in the process. 
Many of you know this to be true, that you lost some of your old friends when you became a believer because they didn't want to go along with your new life. And they wanted to pull you back into your old life. So you may lose some, some friends in the process. But you will gain a whole new family in Christ. I love how Peter talks about the church of Christ. I love how he is speaking to believers who are banded together in suffering and persecution. So they're not as worried maybe about being picky with other believers and pointing things out that they don't like about other believers and being judgmental, even though that propensity is still going to be there. They're loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. In fact, go back to chapter 1 and verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That characterized these believers. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the reason? Because you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. You have a new life. Therefore, you're going to relate differently to people. You gain this whole new family in Christ. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The brink is here. And what does he say? He says, be self-controlled and alert so you can pray. And then he says, above all, most important thing he could tell them, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying, don't be so worried. Just love. He even says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, I've got to make them a meal. Well, I've got to watch their kids. Well, I've got to go help them clean their garage. Or whatever it is. He's saying, don't grumble. Just show hospitality to each other. You've been given the gift of eternal life. And now God has given you gifts to use to build the body of Christ. He said, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Not to serve yourself, to serve one another. There's your new family in Christ. So yeah, you might lose some friends in the process and your, your heart will break because you want your friends to know Christ too. And maybe some of them will come to know him, but maybe some will stay as far away as they can and they will continue to, to malign you. So growing in grace is supernatural. It is relational. And it is internal but I want to point one other thing out because it's kind of obvious when you talk about relationships. It involves conflict. Look at verse 4. It says they malign you. They malign you. What does that mean? It means they want to ruin your new good reputation. You had a reputation for whatever you were known for back in your old life and now in Christ you've got a clear conscience. You're forgiven. You've got a new track record. Believers hear about your old life and they're like, I can't imagine you like that. But now those who are unbelievers malign you and they want to ruin your new good reputation. G.C. Burkhauer says, the life of sanctification proceeds in weakness, temptation, and exposure to the powers of darkness. The life of sanctification proceeds in weakness, 
temptation and exposure to the powers of darkness. We want to be free from that and God is saying, you know, this conflict is a hothouse for normal Christian growth. Growing in grace is going to involve conflict. Now what will make you want to arm yourselves like this? To want to do God's will? Well, just remember, like we looked last week, remember what sin did to Jesus, took him to, made him go to the cross. Sin messes your life up. Remember that. Have a good memory about it. Remember what sin has done to the world. We shouldn't be surprised when sin increases because the world is filled with sin. But you also should remember what an offense sin is to God. Sin violates God's will. You want God's will? Sin violates it. Matthew 6 says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Bible tells us Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Teach them to obey. You see, the will of God, the Bible tells us, is good, acceptable, and perfect. You should want that. We should pray for God's will, not ours. And all the while, we are feeling the the effects of sin every day. In Christ, we are saved from the power of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, and one day we will be free from its presence. But here's the thing about sin in your life, and we looked at this last week about abandoning sin. You should kill it. You should slay it. You should shun it. But but when you abandon sin and you go towards righteousness, you want to grow in grace and you want to do the will of God, you don't focus on the sin but on God's righteousness. It's like this. You take out the trash. You take out the garbage. And let's say you have some really, really smelly garbage. And you take it out and put it in the can or the container. And then every day you just kind of go back and lift up the lid and take a really deep breath. Just take a big whiff, like, woo, wow, that's some smelly garbage. And you're just like, oh, I didn't go smell the garbage today. You just don't do this. You throw the garbage away, you close the lid, and you, you are repulsed when the lid gets back open. That's how sin should be to you. But you should be focused on righteousness, not on sin. You shouldn't be walking around frozen in fear and saying, oh, no, I, I think I just sinned. No, you should say, wow, I want to do the will of God. And when God makes it clear to you that you've sinned, and then you know you have, you confess it, repent of it, forsake it, and and go move in the the direction of of righteousness. Do God's will. Do what is, is right. Don't live frozen in fear over sinning, like a deer in the headlights. If you're frozen in fear, you can't walk by faith. You ever tried to walk in the snow when it's freezing? Not as easy as when it's warm. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. He's given us a spirit of power over sin. And righteousness is how you grow in grace. By God's spirit, do the will of God. Don't focus on your sin. Don't go back to the trash container. Leave the lid shut. 
You say, well, it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard life. You're battling indwelling sin, and you're wanting to do the will of God. Well, I like how C.S. Lewis put it. Christianity is harder and easier. It's not like paying your taxes and hoping that there will be enough left for you to live on. Christ says, give me everything. I don't want, you know, a portion of your time and a portion of your money and a portion of your work. I want all of you. So basically, hand over all the desires you have, the ones you think are innocent, the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. So God wants for us. So armed with Christ's purpose, you're going to be willing to die for your faith in Christ. And you're going to commit to abandoning sin and commit to doing God's will and growing in grace. One last thing I'll point out, and we're going to see it in verses 5 and 6, really, by way of contrast. Armed with Christ's purpose, you must cling to hope. Cling to hope. Cling to your eternal hope. Have a firm grasp on your eternal hope in heaven. That's your motivation. Remember that God has promised you salvation in Christ. In stark contrast to those who are outside of a relationship with Christ, they have no hope. They're without God and without hope in the world. Those without Christ have no hope. Verse 5 tells us they, that's the unbelievers who malign you, try to ruin your good reputation in Christ, they will give account When we're mistreated, it's very easy to want to retaliate and to get back and to plan out how we're going to do that. So who are they going to give an account to? Will it be us? No. To him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who's that judge? It's God himself. But more specifically, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. You catch that? He's given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. They're going to be judged by Jesus. They're going to give an account to Him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, literally He is saying, amen, amen. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So you have faith in Christ. You're trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross in your place for your sin. You believe he died and was buried and rose from the grave and is coming back. Then you have passed out of death into life. But if you do not have the Lord Jesus in your life, you are coming into judgment. Think about what sin will do to unbelievers in hell for all eternity. They are judged based on their sin. They did not take the only cure for sin. They didn't take the life preserver, Jesus, who saves Every believer is going to say, all glory be to Christ. 
He was pierced for my rebellion. He was crushed for my sins so I wouldn't be. He was killed without mercy, murdered without mercy so that I could have mercy. If you can't say that today, then you need to believe the gospel truth, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Verse 6 tells us, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, people have come up with all sorts of crazy explanations of that, the worst being that people that died physically get another chance at salvation. They get to hear the gospel again after they've died for a second chance there. They're ignoring the Bible's clear teaching that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. What does it mean that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? It fits with verse 5. Again, look at verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Who are the dead here? The dead are Christians who've died by the time that Peter was writing. What it means is the gospel was preached to believers who've died. They had heard and believed the gospel, but they died by the time Peter wrote. Some of those believers were physically put to death as martyrs. But all of them who died, died physically. But it says they are alive in the spirit according to God, according to the will of God. Why is this here? It is here for a comfort and an encouragement to believers. In those days, people would say, well, you missed out. They missed out on the return of Christ because they died before he returned. Complete misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying. Unbelievers would mock them and say, well, they were professing a hope in Christ, but they died, so they don't have eternal life. And Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, the first Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be deceived about those who are asleep, literally dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, in that day, they thought the return of Christ was imminent. So do we, at any moment. The twinkling of an eye, trumpet of God will sound the voice of an archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord and then he says comfort one another with these words encourage one another with these words Hebrews 6 tells us we are to realize the full assurance of hope until the end Hebrews 6, 19 says, our hope in Christ is an anchor for our souls. You know what that means? Hope holds on to you. Hebrews 10, 23 says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he is faithful. It goes on to say that we have need of endurance. But when we have done the will of God, we can receive what was promised. 
I had the privilege yesterday of attending a memorial service for a believer. And one of the things that was mentioned is that it is what we trust that we haven't seen yet that keeps us going. It is what we trust in but haven't yet seen that keeps us going. It's like Peter said. You do not see him, but you believe in him. You do not see Jesus now, but you love him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. To arm yourselves, the genuine hope of life forever with God that he has given you in Christ, because he has promised that you will overcome sin. He has promised that you will escape judgment. He has promised that you will enter heaven and dwell with him forever in perfect holiness. Colossians says that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven of which we heard through the gospel and we are to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast not moved from the hope of the gospel clinging to it because Christ in us is our hope of glory. And now we are not in heaven yet but God says we are seated with Christ in heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus and you are lying in the filthiest gutter, in the filthiest city, in the entire universe, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I've been reading a book recently by Maurice Roberts called The Thought of God. And it's really impacted me. He says about what the people of God now enjoy. While they're here on earth, while they're slugging it out with sin and attempting to do the will of God and trusting the Spirit, he says they are in a state of grace and that is a state in which they are enabled to see the vanity of all earthly power and glory and the transience of all that is done under the sun. To be in the heavenlies is to be in the very suburbs of glory. I love that picture. To be in the heavenlies is to be in the very suburbs of glory. The Puritans used to say that grace is young glory Robert says we do not yet see the sights that we shall see hereafter but we are already aware of them that's why we cling to hope clinging to our eternal hope is why we would do anything on earth that we would hope would be of eternal value clinging to hope is why we send people to Iraq and Cambodia and South Africa. Clinging to hope is why we give our money for local and global outreach. Clinging to hope is why we want to build covered sports courts and multi-purpose buildings on church grounds to reach more people for Christ. Clinging to your hope in Christ because Christ holds on to you is the reason why you should find every way imaginable to share that hope with others. That's why you pray for your coworkers and your neighbors and your family and your friends. 
It's why you bake cookies and take meals and watch kids. To show the love of Jesus in tangible ways. And it will look like you are doing what anyone else would do. In fact, people might even say, anyone would do that. But beneath, beneath the surface, behind the scenes, the motivating factor is your hope in heaven. And a desire for others to know that hope as well. We who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead should go to great lengths to share that hope. You will suffer persecution. You will be maligned. Be willing to take it for the cause of Christ. Clinging to hope is why you should invest so deeply in people's lives that you are willing to spend and be spent to the point of exhaustion for their souls. Clinging to hope is why I want to live every day for Jesus and the gospel. Cling to your hope in Christ. Be assured of it. Be convinced of it. Be convinced of the reality of heaven because being convinced of that reality makes life on earth and suffering on earth bearable. In 1812, Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary in Burma, wrote his fiancée Anne's father asking his blessing on their marriage. In his letter to him, he said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. That's tough for me to read as I have five, four daughters, five kids but four daughters. Can you consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world? Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress. Can you consent to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death? Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of the glory of God. Who can say no to that? He goes on, can you consent to all this in hopes of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Can you consent? Anne died on October 24th, 1825 in Burma. John Bunyan, who was imprisoned for 12 years for his faith in Christ, said that the persecution of the godly was of God never intended for their destruction, but for their glory, and to make them shine the more when they are beyond this valley of the shadow of death. Arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Be willing to die for your faith. Abandon sin. Do God's will. Hope in heaven. 
Because faithful is he who calls you, who will also bring it to pass. Lord God, we look future. Believers willing to suffer because there is triumph. The promise of eternal life and threats and persecution and death and righteousness in Christ. Onward, Christian soldiers, that is our cry. Lord, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Lord, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And therefore, we are safe and secure in Christ. Amen.